to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people inside us who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's a a fascinating encounter that Jesus has with um, a rich young man, recorded in a number of Gospels for us. Maybe you're familiar, let me read a bit to us. Jesus started on his way and a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, and if you leave it there, it looks pretty good actually, doesn't it? He looks at him and he loves him and he says, I guess we would encourage him, wouldn't we? If this kind of guy came up to us and listed his credentials, it sounds pretty good if you ask me. Look how he's kept all the commandments. Look how he's related um, to people. In one sense, look how he's related to God. And yet Jesus sees him to his heart and he knows what's really going on and so he looks at him and he loves him and he says, give all your money away. Because that is what you really worship. And I say that because I wonder if there's something similar going on in Sardis as we look at it this evening. In my mind it's a slightly terrifying letter because outwardly the church looks like it's doing pretty well. They look good, but inwardly we shall see they are bad. Things are not good. And it's as if Jesus sees their deeds and he looks at them and he loves them and he tells them really hard things. He warns them what they must do. He he warns us what we, we must do. I think actually it's one of the harshest letters. And it feels pretty hard going, in large part because there's not much in Sardis to encourage them with. So it's mostly challenge, it's conviction, it's confrontation. There's not a lot of excitement and encouragement as we've had in previous weeks to start things off. If you've been here in previous weeks, you will remember that... um, We are working our way through seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And we began in the south coast of Ephesus, Ephesus, and we worked our way up to the top. And now we're coming inland down south. I'll bung a map up next time in the new year to remind you of that. 
And we've said each time that what's going on is he is speaking to individual churches. He is speaking to individual contexts, individual situations. He sees their strengths and their weaknesses, the good stuff that's going on, but the bad stuff as well. But we've said as well he's not just speaking to them, he's speaking to us. He speaks to the universal church. He speaks to Christians down the ages and across the globe. And we've seen it week on week as well. To be a Christian in those days would mean standing out against pagan worship. It would mean being different. The town would bow to Caesar and to worship him as God, but not for the Christians. They were different. And it would be painful in all kinds of ways as they stood out. And Sardis is interesting. Sardis has an interesting history behind it, which I think is relevant, actually, um, as Jesus writes to them. Sardis, history will tell you, was famous wealthy, successful and beautiful for a time. But its greatness lay in the past. History tells us that at one time Sardis thought it was untouchable, undefeatable. It sat on a hill surrounded by cliffs, almost impossible to scale, to breach. They thought they had defences that nobody could get through. But actually it had been attacked and defeated twice. Arrogantly, I thought it was safe. It wasn't watchful. It wasn't careful. And I wonder whether that's more than just a history lesson for us, but that might be in mind as Jesus speaks to this town. I wonder if that is, helps us to understand the shape of the letter, as you reflect on the reality of their history. Because the church is made up as well, it seems, of people who started well. They're in danger, though, of falling apart, in danger of it all going to pot. So let's have a look at what Jesus says to them. And the clicker is not working, so I'm going to have to use my long arm. And you see, first of all, the warning. So have a look at verse 1. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So he jumps in with no encouragement. No warm opener. Straight in with the reality of their situation. I guess a chilling comment that will strike fear into their hearts. I know your deeds. On the outside you look keen. You look busy. You look like there's lots going on. There are rotors. There are programmes. There are meetings. There are events. Maybe Monday. Monday they have cups of tea and a cake and and then um, dance lessons for the over 60s. Maybe on Tuesday they have organised five-a-side football for the locals. Maybe Wednesday a soup kitchen for the homeless. Maybe Thursdays that was home group day. Maybe Fridays it was um, homework club for the local kids. Maybe Saturday there was a bit of a break and then Sunday they had two services that everyone attended faithfully. And at Christmas, Christmas was even busier. They could do Christmas well. There were carol services. There was a Christmas lunch. There was even a donkey that came into church. Perish the thought. On the outside, they looked busy. They looked really busy. They looked really good. On the inside, they were dead. And in fact, it was more than they looked busy. Actually, they had a reputation of being alive in verse 1. They had a, a reputation for it, perhaps in the local community. Perhaps the houses that were around the church. 
Maybe the local community spoke well of them. Maybe they admired all the stuff, the events, the service that the local church put it on for that area. Maybe it was even a fashionable church to go to. Or, or maybe it was a sort of network of churches there with a reputation. Other churches looked up to them, envied them and the kind of stuff they could do. The impression that they gave. But in reality, says Jesus, the church is dead. It was alive in name only. For all its activity, it was a dead corpse. For all its reputation, it was a dead corpse, quietly rotting away. And no one else could see it, but the Lord knew. Because that was the problem. Verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Now that unfinished word there um, means uncompleted or unfulfilled, but it wasn't just that they were sort of not complete finishers, good at starting things, but easily distracted and going off on tangents and leaving everything sort of half done. No, it was that there was an emptiness. Their actions were hollow. And if you saw what was really going on, and God saw what was really going on, he saw that there was an emptiness to their outward activity. The church may have had a great reputation amongst the local community, amongst the local other churches, but God knew what was going on. Because see how verse 2 ends? I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. They couldn't fool him. We can't fool him. So I hope you see why it's something of a striking letter, actually. Because it's a church full of Pharisees. People who were committed to the cause, people who looked the part, people who were super active, super committed, but were dead inside. I think that's why over the summer as we looked at the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 in the mornings, that was such a challenging couple of months for I know a number of people at church because in, in a world of image and outward appearance we know how to portray an image to give an outward appearance. But the Beatitudes dealt with the insides, with our character, with what we really like. Are we really poor in spirit? They said, do we really mourn over our sin? Are we really meek? Are we really merciful to others? The problem is we're quite good at faking it. Lewis was helping us with that this morning. We're not not really good at being open with others and opening up and being honest with one another. We like to appear and to look and to sound spiritual and like we're sorted and wise and mature, but verse 2 in the sight of God, we can't fool him. When Jesus encountered the Pharisees, they couldn't fool him. And so he said to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Maybe he would say, Woe to you, church in Smyrna. You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs who look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of bones of dead and everything unclean. And we thought a couple of weeks ago as we reached Pergamum, we went back to Hebrews 4, do you remember? We thought of Jesus with a sword in his mouth, uh, 
chapter 2 and verse 12, a very interesting image. And we said, well, the, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And maybe in Sardis, maybe they thought they could pull the wool over people's eyes by their activity, by what they did. But 3 verse 2, the Lord sees. That's why he describes himself as he does in verse 1. We've said each week that the description of Jesus is relevant for the church in question. So verse 1, the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. It's similar to Ephesus actually. There's the intimacy of Christ with his church. He walks along, among the lampstands. He's in their midst. He's with them in all that they do. But the point is, when we think we can get away with it, when we think God's not watching, he is watching. He is with us. When we think there are things perhaps that we're hiding from God in our lives, the reality is we're not hiding them. If there are areas in our lives that we think he doesn't care that much about, the reality is he does. Because verse 2, he sees. Even if it's only you in the room, he is there with you. And the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and has seven stars is a, a huge encouragement for disheartened Christians. But it's a challenge for sinful Christians. Because he is with us. And he sees. Maybe that's us. Maybe we serve well as a church. Maybe we serve well as individuals. But inside we know we're far off. We know we feel mostly dead. When sin becomes normal for us. When we begin to to cohabit with sin and, and barely notice it's there, when we cynically think it doesn't matter anymore, we can't be bothered to fight sin. But I take it as Jesus writes the Sardis. That's a letter we need to hear. But as we've said each time, the warnings that he gives, biblical warnings in Scripture, are are designed to elicit a response, to change behaviour, to make something different happen. And so how are they to change? What are Sardis to do, verse 3? You see, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. So what are they to do? Well, firstly, they're to remember. They're to remember, and the implication that they are to remember is because they have forgotten something. They have drifted. Maybe they've drifted from their early excitement and their zeal, the, the joy of being a Christian for the first few years. Maybe in Sardis, when the Gospel arrived, it was accompanied by significant change. Maybe they were different people. Their lives had been turned upside down. The transformation in their priorities, revolutionary repentance... Prayer meetings were overflowing. You couldn't fit enough people in the building. They weren't the people they had ever they had been in the first in the first place. Everyone had heard about it, but then the zeal and the excitement just kind of drifts away. Life crowds in. 
It became a thing of the past and it seems they were just left with the actions. Maybe those things that have become habits. Maybe as part of their church culture. Maybe just part of their normal week routine, normal life. But they've forgotten why they do them. They can do the stuff, but they've forgotten why. It's like many churches today. Maybe it's like us. Almost like muscle memory. We're still active, we still engage in ministry and activity, and, but forgotten why we've done it. Why are they forgotten? Maybe the temptation that we all have is to, to just kind of focus in on the activity and not think about why we do it. Maybe it was the attrition from the prevailing culture. We'll see in a bit that they were under the cost in a number of ways. Maybe as they thought differently from the rest of the world, it just gets too tired. And you can kind of do the outward stuff, but maybe you're tired of, tired of sticking out too much, tired of being different. And so the core of their faith has been eroded. You get a hint of that in verse 4, actually. There's more than just, more than just this drift that's gone on, but in verse 4... You see, there are hints of active disobedience, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, which is interesting language. Um, the, the language probably points to the kind of idolatry that went on in Sardis. Again, if you were here for Pergamum or Thyatira, you might remember the pagan temples that we spoke of. And at the heart of the community for that place, there would be this temple, um, and the uh, economy would, um, would revolve around it. There would be idolatrous worship, there would be temple prostitutes, um, apparently Sardis was devoted to the worship of the, the mother goddess um, Cybele I think her name is and so one writer puts it like this talking about worship in Sardis he said her worship was of the most debasing character and orgies were practised at the festivals held in her honour sins of the foulest and darkest impurity were committed on those occasions and you see, if your whole economy, if your whole town is circled around the temple and you start saying no thank you to that, then that would be very costly. And so maybe some of the Christians were going back into that lifestyle again. Maybe they had soiled their clothes as they regressed back into pagan worship. Maybe it's because financially they were suffering, they couldn't afford it. So they had to go back. Maybe socially or physically they were suffering and they just thought it's not worth it, so they're going to go back. Maybe it was just too inbuilt, ingrained in their lifestyle and they just couldn't say goodbye to it. Until they find themselves back again where they were, worshipping at the temple. Because it doesn't take much, much for us to, to think through the parallels with our day and our context and our lives. I could think of friends, I could think of colleagues who, who made a commitment to Christ who eagerly and excitedly believed the gospel for the first time, and perhaps their lives were, were transformed in one sense, and that they followed Jesus, but then they began to see the reality of the cost. The relational cost, because people treated them differently now. The social cost, not going to the places or doing the things that they used to do, people thought they were weird. Maybe it's a student head home, and see their parents, who, who aren't believers, and they kind of mock them, slightly, you think, well, it's just a phase you're going through, something you'll grow out of. And yet, for many, the cost gets too much, 
and they turn back. That initial growth and flourishing and yet the cares of this world mean that they wilt and die. Maybe people still calling themselves Christians for a bit, but that begins to tail off. In the long run, not waking up, not repenting. And Jesus warns them, I will come like a thief in the night. You will not know at what time I will come to you. Just imagine Sardis, imagine the burglars at night time prowling around, looking for for targets, scoping around the different neighbourhoods, looking to make their move when no one was expecting it. While Jesus says, I will come and I will remove the lampstands. I will take away the light and the witness of this church unless you wake up, unless you repent. It's not just enough to be active in church. It's about a core faith and a trust in a person. I don't think it's unfair to say this. You can come and tell me afterwards if it is. But I sense in one sense that the, the, the situation inside us is about nominalism. And the warning and the threat that Jesus makes to Sardis is, is actually what's happened in the West, in our country, over the last few decades. In many places it's what's still happening today. People who, who look Christian outwardly, maybe who, who tick Church of England or tick Christian on the census, maybe actively going to church monthly, a couple of times a year, maybe doing some activity, but inside, no real active faith. And so lampstands are removed. And churches shut and become derelict. And in Sardis, it seems to be widespread, but it's not everyone. So in verse 4 to 5, we read of the encouragement. So he warns them but the warning is for a reason. He wants to encourage them to change. And so verse 4, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. So do you see, within Sardis, it's not whole scale, wholesale. It's not widespread. There are believers who, who haven't compromised. There are those who have not spoiled their clothes, verse 4. There are those who have not gone with the flow and they will be blessed by Christ. And there are three things, three ways that he describes them as he seeks to encourage them. So the first one is that Jesus will dress them in white, verse 5. Now again, one of the things about the worship of um, Sibele and Sardis was that apparently no temple worshipper was allowed to approach the temple with soiled or unclean garments. There's a huge irony there because they arrive in clean garments but they leave morally filthy. And yet believers here are dressed in truly white garments because they come from the Lord. They're a picture of purity, of righteousness, of justification. Jesus will dress them in white. The second thing that will happen is that he will not blot their names out from the book of life. Now that phrase is used five times in Revelation, the book of life. It's a, 
It's a, name, it's a book full of names of believers whose destiny has been determined in being with the Lord forever. Again, for the anxious believer, for the one who's finding it hard to keep going, Jesus says, okay, keep going. When you feel the pressure to conform and you're not quite sure you can stand up and you feel like waving the white flag and you feel like just blending in, don't worry, I've got you. Your name cannot be tipexed out. That does not work. Be humble, be confident. I've got you. So he'll address them in white. Their names will not be blotted out. But then, thirdly, he will acknowledge their name before God the Father. You see, it's as if, it's as if they remain faithful in his strength and so are given robes. They show themselves to be in the book and so he reads their names and they are welcomed. And keep going, he says, and I will honour you. You will be acknowledged before my God, the Father. So I find Sardis challenging. I find it challenging because there are churches who have, who have drifted having started off well. Things were good at the beginning. And so they're a lesson, I think, for Christians who, who perhaps start well, who are keen, who are excited, and yet who find themselves drifting. Perhaps when the pressures of life drift in, and we're just kind of left with, secondly, with activity and busyness and doing stuff. Nativity services, Sundays, home groups, clubs. And Jesus says, just because your diary is full of service, it doesn't mean a lot. Just because your church is full of activity doesn't mean a lot. Because they looked alive, but verse 2, he saw. And he saw they were dead. The challenge as well, I think, thirdly, because they compromised. So there are church who drifted having started off well, there are church who were busy, thirdly, there are church who have compromised. That is, the culture around them just squeezed them. And just shaped them. And tempted them. And for them it just became too hard to keep going. And they, at least a whole load of them, thought they'd just blend in. Go back to what they knew. Shaped by the culture around them because it was too hard to make a stand. And the answer? The answer to this bad news. The answer to the challenge is, verse 2, wake up. Wake up. You're walking around, you're, you're sleepwalking through this world. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Or verse 3, remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. What does that mean? It means go back to the gospel afresh. Go back to Jesus. Go back to what you, you did believe. Stop trusting in your activity and what you do and your busyness. And go back to Christ. And know that he's worth it. And so verse 6, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we, we find this letter to the church in Sardis from the Lord Jesus, a challenging one. 
because we know how easy it is to get caught up in deeds and activity and wanting others to think well of us. And yet, like the Pharisees, to be dead inside. Guard us, please, from that sleepwalking. Guard us from trusting in the wrong things. And might we be those who who wake up, who remember, who go back to the gospel afresh each day. Thank you for the encouragement that he gives for those who do persevere. For those who press on. Thank you that he will dress us in white. Thank you that he will not blot names out from the book of life. Thank you that he will acknowledge us before you for eternity. And so would we be a people, please, who trust in the gospel afresh each day. In your son's name. Amen.